0: If you have a Bible, would you turn to the book of 1 Peter, please? If you've missed us talking about this for a little bit, we are about to begin a series where we work through this book. We will return to our study of the gospel according to Matthew in the fall, Lord willing. So, uh, but 1 Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to be looking this morning. My thanks, as always, to all of these folks who have helped us to sing God's praise this morning. I hope you appreciate, again, the work that goes in and just their commitment to do things that most aren't willing to do. And uh, praise God for that, right? Have you found First Peter chapter 1? Hear the word of God for us this morning in verses 1 and 2 of this beautiful letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ this morning and teach us to your glory. Encourage us, challenge us, grow us. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. How do you live in a world that you know is not your world? How do you function in a society that thinks about you as strange, perhaps crazy, and possibly dangerous? These are the kinds of questions that occur to modern believers. Whether you're here in the United States or whether you live abroad, there are questions like this that come to you. Plenty of websites and researchers would tell you that in this present era of Christianity, more Christians are being persecuted, even violently persecuted, than in the prior centuries of the church combined. I'm not going to check their numbers but there are people who are definitely suffering for their faith. If you don't believe that, go visit Voice of, the Monter- Voice of the Martyrs and some of the other web pages that show you that sort of thing. And nations around our world that used to be identified as Christian, at least in their foundation, at least in their ethics, those nations are now seen as post-Christian, sometimes anti-Christian nations. In an April 13th article that was published at the New Yorker magazine's website, the author there bemoaned a very dangerous and frightening happening in the city of Manhattan. Chick-fil-A had the audacity to open a few restaurants in New York. The concerned author wrote, and I quote, New York has taken to Chick-fil-A One of the Manhattan locations estimates that it sells a sandwich every six seconds and the company has announced plans to open as many as a dozen more storefronts in the city. And yet the brand's arrival here feels like an infiltration in no small part because of its pervasive Christian traditionalism, end quote. Now this is no small thing, friends. This is an author writing for a major magazine pointing out that the concept of a Christian-owned company that acts like Christians is to be seen as an infiltration of culture. It is something to be feared. It is something to be opposed. But we're not the first Christians to learn that we live in a world that's opposed to the faith, are we? We're not the first people to have society think that we're nuts, dangerous, or both. And thanks be to God, the Lord has seen fit to give us, in His Word, texts that help us know how to live as God's children in the middle of a fallen world. And one such text, the text we're going to study for the next few months, is the first letter of Peter. Now, you guys know Peter. He had been a fisherman before he met Jesus. Unschooled, uncouth, often impulsive, Peter was one of the twelve disciples and even one of the three closest disciples to Jesus. Peter's the disciple who first called Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter is the one who three times denied knowing Jesus on the night of Jesus' trials. And Peter is the one Jesus restored to fellowship with the call, feed my lambs. According to tradition, Peter was crucified in the city of Rome, and the story tells us Peter even asked that he be hung upside down because he felt he was unworthy to die in the same manner as Jesus. But before his death, Peter had been a very strong influence for a young Christian by the name of John Mark, and that John Mark relied on Peter's accounts of the life of Jesus as he put together what is in our New Testament, the Gospel of Mark, the second gospel. And Peter managed to write two letters that found their way into the New Testament canon as well. Those letters would have been written in the early 60s, about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, um, before Peter then died himself as a martyr under the rule of Nero, probably around AD 64 or maybe 65. Peter knew what it was to live in a world where Christians were not seen as acceptable citizens. Peter knew that Christians are going to need encouragement to honor God and live rightly and take courage as persecutions were about to break out. And Peter spoke to those issues in the letter of 1 Peter. So this morning we're going to start looking Start looking at the book of 1 Peter with the first couple verses, the first couple lines of this book. And we will find a gracious greeting from Peter, a greeting full of encouragement, a greeting full of doctrine. So come along with me. Let's see some ways that Peter greets us with gospel truth to give us hope to live in a fallen world. There will be two main points, but the second point will have some significant subpoints uh, as well. Harold, I guess, can determine if that counts as six or not. Point number, some of you just saw that. Point number one, submit to the authority of the Word of God. Submit to the authority of the Word of God. That's our first point. 1 Peter 1 one begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, first century letters, if you see that those lines right there, They they may remind you of how emails open today, or memos, if you're old enough to remember memos at your workplace. Because in the greeting, we see the sender's name, we see the person to whom the letter is addressed, and we see some sort of form of greeting. And Peter is no exception. First Peter is no exception. So what's the author call himself? He calls himself, get this, Peter. That makes sense, since he's who wrote it. But he's using a name that's important to him. His name is Simon. But Jesus gave him the new name, Peter. Jesus used that name when he commended Peter for believing in him as the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you go back and read the Gospels, by the way, when you see Jesus call him Simon, that usually means something goofy is about to happen or that Peter's done something silly. When, you, when Jesus calls him Peter, that usually means he's behaving as he should. Peter refers to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the word apostle originally just meant a person sent out with a message, a person sent out with a task. But in the first century, the term really gained in its weight and importance, especially theologically. Because a person who is an apostle is not just a person who carries a message, but he's a person who's sent out with a message and, like an ambassador, with the authority to speak on behalf of the one who sent him. So Peter says, look at this, he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's weighty, my friends. Peter's telling us that the words that he's writing, they carry with them the full authority of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Peter is writing to us the authoritative word of God. I know maybe some of you grew up in the era of Bibles that put the letters, the words of Jesus in red letters. You may be carrying one right now. And that's fine. It's kind of neat, I suppose. But don't you dare think for a moment that the letters that this book are written in are any less inspired than the red ones. Because Peter's writing with the authority of Jesus. And we can say a lot more about what it means to be an apostle we've got enough in front of us right here to see our first point. And it's a crucial point. Peter, he walked with Jesus. Peter saw the risen Lord Jesus. Peter had been sent out with G, by Jesus with authority. And Peter is writing the word of God. And as you read it, as I read it, we have to begin with the right response. Even before you see what this text says, even before you examine the theological claims, even before you see the moral commands that Peter's going to put in this book, you have to receive what's going to come as the word of God. Because this book, dear friends, is God speaking through Peter to a first century audience. And it's God speaking through the Holy Spirit to you and to me. You are responsible to hear this word, to see that it's true, and to receive it as the word of God with all authority. And it is your responsibility to obey this word. And there's the point submit to the authority of the word of God. Young or old, baby Christian, or longtime believer, the call here is the same. God's Word is inspired. God's Word is authoritative. And if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, you have already told Jesus that you are willing to believe what He says in His Word, and you have told Jesus that you are willing to obey His commands. So as you and I get started right here, right now, right now, choose to surrender to the Word of God because it's the voice of God That commands us all. With me? This is where you start. I'm gonna do what this book says, and I'm gonna believe what this book says. Point number two really, the heart of our message now find comfort in salvation. Find comfort in salvation. In this letter, Peter is going to talk to us about a lot of important things. He's going to speak to us from the Lord about salvation, holiness, the gospel, loving one another, the unity of believers, submitting to authority, workplace relationships, family relationships, church relationships, suffering like Jesus, sanctification, spiritual gifts, the glory to come, church elders, and walking in humility toward victory. Can you believe he's going to get that in in five chapters? And I am looking forward to this. To unpacking these things. But even before we get into all of those topics, we can see from the way Peter opens this letter that the truth, that the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the truth that surrounds your salvation and mine, that is to be a primary source of hope, of encouragement, of comfort for every Christian who hears his words. So what we're going to do here is we're going to look at how Peter speaks about the people who read his letter, that he sent the letter to. And in that, we will find four reasons to be comforted specifically because of our salvation as we live in a harsh, difficult world that thinks we're nuts. So sub-point A, if you will, why should we be comforted? Christians are elect. Christians are elect. One, One says, to those who are elect... I would love to tell you that there's a really neat secret for how I get these sermon points. Sometimes they just kind of hit you. This letter is written to Christians. How can we tell? Peter calls them elect. And if you took the time to look at this sentence, if you really break the grammar down from what happens in verses 1 and 2, you're going to see that the word elect is really an extremely important word in this sentence. Because the phrase is, In verse two, all modify the word elect in verse one. So if you're reading a new American Standard, how many of you have a new American Standard Bible? Yeah. And you've got chosen at the end of the sentence, don't you? Yeah. They the translators there have chosen to take elect from where it sits in the original sentence and move it to the end. Again, elect and chosen mean the same thing. They've moved that to the end of the sentence because they want to show the grammatical flow of how verse 2 mo- is all modifying the word elect or the word chosen. That's why it's done that way. And, and, and that's fine because you can, you can do that with Greek. But Peter, Peter really wants his readers to begin this reading with a Thought related to the fact that if you are saved, you are chosen. You are elect. Now, the biblical topic of election, that's one that people struggle with. Have you ever run into anybody who struggles with the topic of election? Yeah. And you know what, friends? If you're here this morning and you're still wrestling with that topic, what it means to be elect, I, I really do. I understand. And I want you to know this. You are welcome here with us. You are welcome here as you work out. How am I supposed to understand this? What does it really biblically mean? But I do want to be clear with you that Providence Reformed Church, as part of the values that make us who we are, we're a church that we unashamedly proclaim a belief in sovereign election and what may be called the doctrines of grace. We we believe elect means elect. And the word elect means chosen. It means chosen out of, chosen out of a group. And that runs all through the scriptures. God chose Abraham and God chose Israel as a nation out of all the people of the world at that time. God chose Jeremiah out of pre-exile Israel to be his prophet. Jesus chose his 12 to be disciples out of all the people who lived in first century Israel. And regularly, the Bible speaks about God electing people to salvation. The Bible calls the saved the elect. Just listen to some verses from the Bible that call the saved either the elect or the chosen and Isaiah 65 verse 9 the bible says I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah possessors of my mountains my chosen shall possess it and my servants shall dwell there my chosen shall possess it he said Matthew 24:31 Jesus speaking about his return says he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other, in Romans 8:33, Paul writes, "Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies." Colossians 3 verse 12, Paul writes, "Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience. Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul opening his letter to Titus says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of who? God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, Peter himself, in the book we're studying, says of the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. To be a Christian, biblically, is to be elect. There is no way that the Bible ever speaks of a Christian without calling them the elect or chosen of God. To be a Christian is to be chosen by God to be one of his own. And that runs through every facet of Scripture and shows us that if we belong to God, if you belong to God, if I belong to God, it's not because of me. It's because God chose us. And the Lord chose us, why? Out of his own love. And for his own reasons. God did not choose you because of any good that is in you. God did not choose you because of any good he foresaw might be in you. Because why? Why does God say I didn't choose you for that reason? God says, I will not have you boast that you contributed to your salvation. Ephesians 2, 9 says, we're saved by God's grace through faith. Not as a, result, as a result of works, because God will not have us boast. Now, here's a question to think about. Why would Peter use that word, that theologically loaded word, to speak about God's children right here in the beginning of this letter? I believe it's because Peter wants, from the very beginning, To remind the children of God that no matter what the world around you says about you, no matter what persecutions or rejections you may face, you, if you're a Christian, have already received the only approval that can possibly matter. You have been elected, chosen, by God unto salvation. When you're saved and you know you're saved because of the sovereign working of God, you know what you can do? You can rest assured in your salvation. You don't have to fear that you will somehow fail to to, to produce, that you'll somehow fall short, that you will be let go by God because you didn't do enough. Instead, when you know God chose you based on God's own will for God's own glory, you are safe with God, even if the world fights against you, even if the world wants to kill you, you will be held tight by the Lord who before the ages ever began looked at you and said, that one's mine. John chapter 6, verse 37 to 40, Jesus, talking about how salvation occurs, says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. On the last day, excuse me. So who's going to be saved according to Jesus? Jesus. All that the father gave to the son long, long ago. Before there was time, before there was time, the father gave a gift of a bride, of a people, to his son. And everyone included in that gift will be saved. And everyone included in that gift is the elect, is the chosen. These are the ones Jesus says, I will raise them up on the last day. So if you belong to Jesus Christ, know this, God calls you his elect, his choice, his people. And that can give you comfort when the world around you says less kind things about you. So point B, Christians are exiles. Christians are exiles. That doesn't sound comforting, does it? Verse one says, to, to the to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now I've used this illustration before, but I think it helps. I want you to imagine that you have a trip to take. Business or vacation, it doesn't matter, but you are checking into a hotel room. And when you get in there, have you ever gotten into a hotel room and thought furniture's ugly? That painting on the wall is ugly. So what you do is you go out to an art gallery and you purchase a $5,000 painting and hang it up in that room so it looks better. How many of you have done that? No one? Why not? Here's why. You don't spend your money and your energy decorating that hotel room because that hotel room is not your home. And you know what? This world is not our home. We've got two words that occur in this verse that speak to the fact that you and I, all who believe in Jesus, all the chosen by God, are aliens in this world. We are not living at home. It says we're exiles. We're foreigners, we're outcasts in the land we live in. We are citizens of a different kingdom. We are no longer citizens of this world. And you know what that makes this world think about you and me? Because we're not citizens of this world anymore? They think we're nuts! Peter says also that they're part of the dispersion. You might see scattered in the translations. But the whole point here is the dispersion that on the one hand is a reference to cities in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, where Jews had been scattered when they were driven out of Israel. And Peter wants to bring to mind the Babylonian captivity of the Jews, because at the end of this letter, Peter even identifies his location in Rome as Babylon, referencing the power and the might of this empire. Now, for sure, the five cities listed there, they're diaspora cities, they're dispersion cities. But what's interesting about this is I don't think Peter's writing this letter primarily to Jews. The text that comes seems to indicate Peter may be thinking about Gentile believers because in verse 18 of chapter 1, Peter talks about the futile ways of these people's forefathers. And I don't think Peter, writing about the Jews and speaking of their Old Testament faith, would have called it the feudal ways of their forefathers. So I think this is about Gentiles in these cities. I could be wrong, but that's my guess. I think there's something more simple going on here, though. Peter calls these people the elect of God. But they are elect people who have been scattered about in a harsh way world, in a foreign land, in a world that's not their home. These people might ethnically belong in their cities. They might look like they should fit in, but their spiritual lives have been so transformed by God that now they no longer fit in in the world that used to be their home. Now they don't belong. Now they feel the discomfort of living as exiles in a foreign land. And there is comfort for you and me here in remembering that our salvation makes us exiles. You know why? If you're an exile in this world, right now as it stands, you have a home, a glorious home in the presence of the Lord. You don't have any reason at all all to try to fit in with a world that values things that are diametrically opposed to righteousness. We can We can live here. Now by the way, we can live here and be kind people. We can live here and do good things. We can build hospitals and feed the homeless and save lives. But you and I can never live in this world and embrace it as our own. Because our treasure is stored up in heaven and our hearts long for the Savior to come and to come to us from there and to transform this world from what it is to something utterly new and utterly fantastic. Now, again, we believe that the church's job is to build the kingdom of God here on earth. And we believe that God will give the church success as she grows. But this world is not going to be our home until Jesus comes back. And that's encouraging. When you realize that, yeah, the world's against you, but it's supposed to be. subpoint C. Christians are saved by the entire Trinity. Christians are saved by the entire Trinity. Uh, verses 1 and 2. He calls us of the elect, what? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So a third truth about our salvation here, again, this is as encouraging a thing as I think I've heard in forever. And it's not new, it's just beautiful. God, all of God, the entire Holy Trinity takes part in our salvation. Do you think that's cool or is it just me? The Father... The Spirit, the Son, the three persons, the one true God, that's who chose you, that's who saved you, that's who keeps you. Oh, the courage this should give you, Christian. If you belong to God, you belong to all that God is, the Father, the Spirit, the Son have rescued you, and, and the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, they hold to you. Jesus, when he was trying to to offer courage and strength and and talking to his disciples, he he offers the same kind of encouragement in John 10, 27 to 30. Does this sound familiar to you guys? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you remember that? You know what Jesus says Next. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. No one! I and the Father are one. Jesus says Some of these sheep are mine, my elect, my choice, my sheep, my gift from the Father. And Jesus says those sheep are in the hand of the Son of God and they're in the hand of God the Father. And this reminds us of the certainty of our salvation. If you've got genuine faith in Jesus and nobody has the power to take you out of the hand of God because can you imagine anybody with the strength to wrestle you out of the hand of the Father and of the Son at the same time? I don't think so. But even as all three persons in 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, are involved in our salvation, Peter's going to show us that they each, each person of the Trinity, the one true God revealed in three persons, each person has a different role to play. So we first see that we are elect, what? Look at verse 2. According to, you with me? The foreknowledge of God the Father. You all see that, right? That's the role the father played. Now, be careful here. If you're you're falling asleep, and God bless you if you are, I understand. Pay attention here. This matters. Do not let yourself misunderstand the word foreknowledge here and use that misunderstanding to take away the weight of the word elect. Elect. It is a false interpretation to take that wording to, me, to reason out that the way we are elected to salvation is because God the Father foresaw in us that we would come to Jesus. And so because of our choice, he, he chose us. You've heard that argument done before, haven't you? And here's the word foreknowledge. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, see, you Reformed people are messed up. When the word foreknowledge is used in scripture like this, it is never, never used in the sense of simply having data of what is to come. Foreknowledge is never used to indicate God chooses based on foreseeing our choices. Never, never. Instead, when the Bible speaks of God knowing us or foreknowing us, The Bible is speaking about God making a choice to set his affection on us. It's not God having info about you. Foreknowing is choosing beforehand or loving beforehand. Let me give you some verses. You might want to write them down. I mean, if you're a fast flipper, you can go there. But I want to show you the Bible telling us that to know or to foreknow is a word of choice, not merely of data. Okay? Do you understand the difference in cho- choosing and having info, right? Genesis 18, 19, in the English Standard Version, says about Abraham, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. I said chosen there, Right? God points to his choice of Abraham. But what's cool is, the King James Bible, if you look at one of those, if you happen to be one of those folks, it says of God, for I know him. It uses the word know for God's sovereign choice of Abraham. How about Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Remember that? God is speaking there in a poetic parallel in his conversation about Jeremiah. And God at the first line says, I knew you. And the second line, he parallels to know Jeremiah with consecrating him. Knowing and setting him apart are the same thing. They are a parallel. And the Lord's not telling Jeremiah... You should be impressed, Jeremiah. I had intellectual information about you before you were born. No. God says, I didn't just, I wasn't just aware of your existence. I knew you. I consecrated you. I chose you. How about one that's even easier? Amos 3.2. God says, you only, you only have I known of all the families of the earth Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. God says of Israel, they are the only nation he has known. What would it mean if known there meant intellectual awareness? God's looking at Israel, I have no idea who these other people are. I only have known you. I have no idea who these Philistines are you're speaking about. Is God you think God was saying to Israel? You're the only human beings on earth I'm aware of. No. God is saying Israel is the only nation that he has ever chosen up until that point to be a holy nation, his own nation. New Testament, Matthew 7:22 to 23. Jesus says, on that day many will say to me, uh, uh, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, depart from me. Do you remember why Jesus said this if you haven't flipped there? Depart from me because I never, I never knew you. Do you think? Well, again, why are some people going to have to depart from Jesus? It's not because Jesus had no intellectual comprehension of their existence. Jesus is saying, I never knew you in the sense that you never belonged to me. For God to know you is for you to have been, to belong to God, to be chosen by God. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus was delivered, not simply by the factual grasp of the future from God, but he was delivered by God's planning, God's choosing something beforehand. Romans 8, 29 to 30 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he, also, he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Whom does God predestine, call, sanctify, and glorify? Who? It's the people he set his love on beforehand. That's what foreknew means in that verse. Romans 11, verse 2, Paul speaking says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Again, Israel is the people God foreknew. But if this is only a matter of knowledge of their existence, or even a knowledge of their future decisions, this verse is nonsense, because God foreknows everybody in that way, but God only foreknows in a relational or saving way those he elects. 1 Peter 1.20, the book we're going to, we're studying here, says of Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. And again, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. It makes almost no sense that Peter would be saying that God had information about Jesus beforehand. No. If we understand that foreknew involves a plan or a choice beforehand that Jesus would do certain things then the word makes sense and makes the verse mean something. The father has foreknown his elect. And by the way, I did all of that without ever taking you to, what does the Bible use for the term of intimacy when Adam was most loving to his wife? He knew her. Do you think that verse is about data? No. It is about affection. It's about relationship. To foreknow is to forehand, beforehand, set his love on you. So how are you elected? We are elected according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Before time began, God the Father, by his electing choice, foreknew. His children. Now, God knows in an intellectual way every single human being who will ever exist. And if that's what foreknow means, then every single human being, you have to become a universalist because every human being is foreknown. But only the elect have beforehand the saving grace of God set for them in eternity prior. And that's what it means, friends, that we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. His knowing us, His loving us, His choosing us before there was time, not based on anything in us, but based on Him and His love. Okay, well that was fun. We're also elect according to the sanctification of the Spirit. In the sanctification of the Spirit. Now the word sanctification is a word that means holy. It means to be set apart. Now what I want you to remember... And by the way, you'll you'll find commentators handling this slightly differently. What's Peter been talking about? The fact that you are elect. He's talking about your salvation. You are to be comforted in this lost, ugly world by the fact that you're saved. And I think this is still speaking of your salvation. I don't think we've left salvation into a new part of the Christian walk here. Here. He's referencing that God elected you to salvation. The Father placed his love on you in electing you. And the Spirit of God sets you apart in your salvation To be holy to God. In our experience of salvation, the Spirit of God moves on our hearts. The Spirit of God regenerates us. The Spirit of God makes us alive. The Spirit of God changes us to bring us into a holiness, into a relationship with God that you and I could never want in our natural state of of spiritual death and spiritual rebellion. The Spirit of God moves you into salvation and that is sanctification. That's one understanding of sanctification. By the way, Paul saw it this way in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul writes, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first words to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Don't you love Peter and Paul being like right on together, totally saying the same thing? The Spirit of God grants us what? The Spirit of God gives you the gift of faith. The Spirit of God gives you repentance. The Spirit of God gives you the regeneration of your heart that makes you come to Jesus. Travis, are you sure that God's Spirit does that? Faith. Ephesians 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. Well, I must muster that up on my own, right? And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. There's God giving you faith. How about repentance? Does the Spirit give you repentance? Acts 11, 15 to 18. This is so beautiful. Peter is explaining the salvation of, of Gentiles. And he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them, the Holy Spirit coming on them was a gift from God. If God gave the same gift to them that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Now listen to the response to Peter. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted, God gave it, God did it as a gift. God has granted repentance that leads to life. So if you repented, how did you get how did you repent? The Holy Spirit granted you repentance. How about regeneration? Titus three verse five, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. And renewal of the Holy Spirit. So who gives you all of your sanctification? That sanctification that moves you from being sinner to a living Christian? Holy Spirit of God. Based on the election from the Father. Isn't that fun? Now by the way, sanctification also means the process by which... Once we're saved, we walk in obedience to the Lord, and we should live in greater and greater obedience to the Lord. We should be changing one step of glory to the other as we continue to walk the path that God set before us. Obedience is absolutely part of, if 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 there's no obedience in you, you better ask if there's any Christianity in you. There's no such thing as Christianity apart from obedience. Obedience. But the sanctification I think we're talking about here is what you would think of as the initial being made holy, the initial being formally sanctified by God because God makes you holy to God as an active move of the Spirit of God. Then, what do we elect to? The end of that verse in, in 1 Peter 1-2. We elected to obedience to, the, to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And those also are election to salvation. Now, wait a minute, Travis, you just said obedience, and obedience comes after salvation. That's true, but obedience is also how you are saved in the sense of Jesus commands you to repent and believe to be saved, right? And Romans 1.5, what does Paul call it? Paul says, we're talking about Jesus, through whom we receive grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. For the sake of his name among all the nations. The obedience of faith. Jesus has elected us to the obedience of faith. Jesus elected us to respond to the gospel that will save us. He's the one who's responsible to make us obey enough that we would believe. The obedience to the gospel that will save us. Jesus elected us to the obedience to his call that results in our being sprinkled by his blood. By the way, sprinkled by his blood, that kind of sounds icky, but... That takes you back to Exodus chapter 24. And there, do you guys remember Moses doing the covenant and sealing the covenant after the Ten Commandments were given? They built. We got. We got tabernacle. Items, we got holy items, and they're at Mount Sinai. And God asks three times of the people: Are you willing to obey me? I will be your God. You will be my people. Are you really in for that? And the people repeatedly said to God: Yes, we'll obey. Yes, we'll be the people of God. Yes, we'll obey your commands. You be our God. We'll be your people. That's awesome. We're in God. And what did Moses then do? Moses sprinkled, he sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice. That, that blood that had set apart the tabernacle and the holy items, or at least what, what was already what was already holy, the book of the law. Moses sprinkled that blood on the people. And the idea is that these people are now under the covenant. I shouldn't say the tabernacle, per se, because, again, they're still building that at that time, or they're getting the process of that going. But, again, the holy items that were there, the blood was, was used to set those apart, and the blood was used to say, you're under the covenant because of your response, because I've chosen you, and now you've responded in obedience. Same thing in Isaiah 52, at the end of the chapter, 52, 15, that, that that's part of the beginning of the servant song. We think of Isaiah 53 as the song of the servant. You know that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities passage. But even before that, at the end of 52, it's talking about the servant and it says, he will sprinkle many nations. The blood of Jesus is not shed for Israel alone, but for many nations, for all people who come to him from any nation on earth. So when we because of the electing work of the Father and the Spirit and the Son, respond to Jesus in faith and repentance, which the Spirit gives us, we are sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. We are forgiven by Jesus. We are made covenant children of God and we are under His care. We're committed to His Lordship. But friends, if, the, if that much heavy lifting was done by the Father to elect you, the Spirit to elect you, the Son, to elect you, all according to the united work of the Trinity, should that not give you comfort if the world says you're nuts? I think it does. Last point, it'll come super fast. Sub point D, Christians receive grace and peace. What's the end of the greeting say? May grace and peace be multiplied to you. What's the result of this glorious election work of God? The end of the greeting. Peter writes, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. When you've been foreknown by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, brought to obedience by the Son, sprinkled by the blood of the Son, you get the grace of God all over you. You have the favor from God that you could never, ever earn. God gives you peace with God that is life-changing and soul-satisfying. And it changes you. You have the gifts of God given to you in abundance so you can live in this world, so you can function in this world, so you can change a little patch of this world to show that the Lord still reigns. What do we do with this kind of greeting, folks? Let's keep it all in mind. We live in a world that is not our home. We live in a culture that's never going to embrace us, and it's never going to embrace what we stand for. We live in a world that could move us into persecution, into violence, into imprisonment at any time. But before Peter ever says to the people, hey, watch out for persecution, he first says, stand strong with this glorious truth. You are exiles. This world is not your home, but he calls you elect chosen by the Father, brought to salvation by the Spirit, covered by the blood of the Son. And if the world wants to separate you from the love of God, the world is going to have to wrestle you away from the entire power of all three persons of the God of the universe, and that can never, 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 never be done. So Christians, let your salvation give you courage. Let your salvation lead you to give God thanks let your salvation remind you that the grace and peace of God are yours in abundance. And if you're hearing this and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, know this, God commands you, turn away from your sin and believe in Jesus to find life. Jesus Christ will forgive you if you trust in him and turn your life over to him. God will make you into his child and free you from the judgment that you deserve. And if you come to Jesus in faith, if you come to Jesus for salvation, if you let go of your life and you trust in Jesus, you know what you're going to find out? As you learn and as you grow, you're going to find out you were foreknown, elected by the Father to life, elected for holiness in the Spirit, elected to obey the Son, elected to be rescued through His saving work, and you will find the grace of God, and you will find peace with God forever. So, dear friends, why not let go of your life and come to Jesus today? Let's pray together. Father, there's so, so much here. And we would ask you, Lord, help us to be in life-changing, stunned awe of the gospel. Help us be in life changing, stunned, awe at election. Whatever we can handle of this theology, let it be true that we know, we know that if we are saved from start to finish and everything in between, all the credit and all the glory is yours and not one single ounce of it is ours. And if we are to remain in the faith, All the glory and all the good and all the beauty is yours because you're the one who keeps us. And if you keep us, we can survive a fallen world. Help us, Lord. Let us sing to your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.